Something that always got me about Superman, aka Clark Kent, is that no one recognized him. He literally just put on glasses and then people had no idea that he was Superman. Um, that's something that, okay, that's, that's a comic book or whatever else. But, uh, you know, identity is something that we talk about a lot around here. It's something that's talked about a lot in society. And one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite shows growing up was uh, The Office. And, and in particular, one of those shows was uh, where Jim, the prankster, comes in dressed exactly like, identical, to his counterpart, nemesis, co-worker, Dwight. And, and Dwight doesn't dress super dapper for a mid-2000s sitcom. Uh, he has a mustard yellow shirt with a brown tie, brown uh, suit, and then his hair is parted to show off his large forehead. And, and Jim comes in dressed exactly like him, acting like him, but he doesn't catch on until he starts talking about Dwight's three favorite things. Bears, Beats, and Battlestar Galactica. Then Dwight looks up, and he gets really mad, and he said, Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. And it's true. Dwight is right. Identity theft is not a joke. Uh, neither is spiritual identity theft. And unfortunately, I would argue that you and I commit spiritual identity theft often. You see, you and I, we go around, we act like the Messiah. We act like we are people's saviors. And we know we really aren't the Messiah. We know we didn't die on the cross, but we act like we can save others. This plays out all the time. Now, I'm going to paint in broad strokes here for you ladies, but I, I've watched a few romantic comedies or, or just romance movies in my life, and I don't really like them because they pretty much have the same plot. Girl falls in love with bad boy trying to rescue him and save him, right? Generally speaking. But that plays out in real life. There, there are people that I know in, in real life who they go after the bad boy. That played out in youth group. I think I alluded to that um, last week. But it's not just the ladies. Uh, it's all of us. As we think that we can save others, it turns into and it manifests itself like us being workaholics. And, you know, maybe you're a workaholic because you love your job or uh, maybe you're a workaholic because uh, you are greedy, but I, I think it goes beyond that. I, I think workaholics um, think deep down that if they don't do this, the world's going to fall apart. The business is going to fall apart. Their family's going to fall apart. Uh, their life is going to fall apart. And so um, there's nothing wrong with work. God actually made work before the fall of man. Uh, so work existed before Adam and Eve sinned. Work is a gift from God. Hard work is a gift from God. But there's that line where, where deep down you think that everything's going to come crashing down if I don't put in another hour or two or three or four. We think that the world revolves around us. Yet another example is we think that we can be good enough to save ourselves. So we, we follow the letter of the law. We're good church people. We show up at church. We read our Bibles. We pray. We give uh, money to the church. We give money to the good, good things like giving money to the poor or wherever else. We volunteer at homeless shelters. We, we do all these good things. And we think that makes us good enough in God's sight. Uh, I'm, I'm good enough, right, God? 
Or, or worse yet, we think that we can be our children's messiahs. And, and we think that uh, we can uh, make them good enough, obedient enough to the law that they will be saved. But friends, we're acting out a mistaken identity. We are taking the identity of an all-sufficient Savior when you and I are not sufficient in ourselves to save our own self, let alone anyone else. And so we see in John chapter 1 this morning, starting in John 1.19, that there's a man sent from heaven. We've already talked about this guy, John the Baptist. And we see the big idea of today's sermon, two parts, just one big idea is that like John the Baptist, you're not the Messiah. Okay, like John the Baptist, you're not the Messiah, but also like John, you can still serve him. You can still serve him. And so just because I say we have mistaken identity, we try to be our savior, we try to save others, we think life is dependent upon ourselves, that doesn't mean that we don't work. It doesn't mean that we don't do things, but we need an identity check. And I believe that John will give us that identity check as we look at his own testimony. So let's read, starting in John 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What, what do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, very obviously, we've transitioned in our study of John from some deep theological introduction to a narrative, a story. And John, the author, starts off with John the Baptist. So I know that can get confusing sometimes, uh, but John the Baptist is who we're primarily talking about when I say John today, okay? John is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is uh, important for many reasons. He is the greatest person born of a woman, that's Jesus' words. He was sent before Jesus, and he's going to testify of why he exists, why he's here. And so really what we're going to see is three denials of truth, 
John's going to deny three things. Then he's going to make a declaration of who he is. And then finally, he's going to make a proclamation of who Jesus is. And that's what happens in this text. John is out in the middle of nowhere. And it's not so much what John is doing. He's baptizing a lot of people. He's out in the wilderness. He's out in the boondocks, like we like to say. And it's about 24 miles away from Jerusalem. So what happens here is John is gathering not just a little bit of people, thousands upon thousands of people are coming out to the middle of nowhere to have someone yell at them and tell them to repent. Matthew 3, 2 through 4 tells us that. And so John is an important figure because, yes, people are coming to him, but he's also an important figure because we've talked about this before. His birth was miraculous, His father, Zechariah, was a priest and saw an angel come down and the angel said, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah said, how? I'm older than dirt and so is my wife. And the angel said, well, you're not going to be able to talk. That's going to be the sign to you. You're going to name him John. Zechariah went home. He told his wife, scribbled on some notes. We're going to have a son. We need to name him John. They had a son. They named him John. Now, lots and lots of people would have known about John's birth. We don't really know what happened after his birth. He went out into the desert somewhere. Uh, His parents were older, so it's likely they died uh, when he was fairly young. But John is out in the desert. He starts wearing camel skins and eating locusts and honey. And he starts yelling at people. And he draws a crowd. They didn't have TVs or podcasts back in the day, so there wasn't much to do. And so uh, some friends would say, hey, Tobias, Yes, Jethro, you want to go out to the middle of the wilderness and see John the Baptist? Sounds good. So people would go out to the middle of the wilderness. There was no reason for you to go there. And they would hear John yell at them, and he he would yell at people, and he would call some religious people brood of vipers, and he would call them to repent, and they would be baptized, and they would repent. And so this got the eye of the important people in Jerusalem. Now, Back in this day, there was, uh, the Romans were ruling over everybody, but the, the Jewish people had some self-rule. And what they had was like a congress. We'll call it the Sanhedrin because that's the name of the congress uh, for them. And the congress was, consisted of some people who didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, they didn't believe necessarily that this is the word of God, uh, but they were of the priestly caste, and those were the Sadducees. And they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, right? And then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees would have been, I'll be honest, people, they probably would have been the people that we would have liked to have been a part of. They were righteous. They believed that that was the word of God, that there was the resurrection from the dead. They believed that holiness mattered and counted. And they were looking out for the Messiah. And now they hear about a man, miraculous birth, He's out in the desert drawing thousands and thousands of people. And so what the Pharisees did is they gathered together uh, themselves and they said, we need to figure out who John the Baptist is. And so I'm convinced that they sent the youth pastor priest, okay, low men on the totem pole, out to the middle of nowhere. Because let's face it, the the people who have seniority don't want to walk 24 miles in the desert uh, out to the middle of nowhere to ask a guy a question. And so uh, we do see that, right, Uh, because verse 24 and 25, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and then they ask him, 
then why are you baptizing, right? We, we, we have to have an answer. This isn't a good answer. So these youth pastor priests, they come out to John the Baptist. They see the crowds, the thousands and thousands of people who are repenting and being baptized, and they ask John this question. They ask him, who are you? Now, John knows exactly what they're asking when, he, when he, they ask the question, who are you? He knows that they're not saying, you know, what's your name? They're asking if John is the Messiah. And so John answers in verse 20. Look at it. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So we very adamantly here three times. I am not the Christ. John knew who he was. Even though he had as much success in ministry with thousands and thousands of people coming to the middle of nowhere to be baptized, John knew that his ministry was not about himself. John knew that his ministry was about the Christ. So he confesses he's not the Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And, and these men, these youth pastor priests, they're, they're looking for a Messiah. But in, in Jewish theology, they're also looking for Elijah and a prophet. So they go on and they ask in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? Now that seems like a silly question to ask because obviously he's not Elijah. His name is John. But that's not what they're asking. That's not what they're getting at. They're asking if he's fulfilling the role of Elijah. Now, now why? Why are they asking that? Do you know your Old Testament? In the Old Testament, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And, and he didn't die. Pretty sweet gig, right? He goes up into heaven. Then the very last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, he says in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That was written 400 years before this occurrence. And for 400 long years, the people of Israel were looking for salvation. They were looking for that Messiah. And so the last book said that Elijah is going to appear on that final day. And so they say, okay, are you Elijah? And John answers, no. And that's good and fine. We can move on from there, except Jesus has to go and throw a wrench in it. Because in Matthew eleven four, Matthew eleven four, Jesus actually says explicitly that John the Baptist was Elijah. So what do we do here? We have the prophet, greatest man born among women, says he's not Elijah. And then later on, we have Jesus who says he is Elijah. Well, John and Jesus are both right. In one sense, John the Baptist wasn't Elijah. He was John the Baptist. He didn't necessarily know that his role was that role of fulfilling the role of Elijah. But Jesus is right and uh, just... Side note, Jesus is always right. <laughs> Jesus is right in saying that John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah that Malachi spoke of. And we need to give a little slack to John the Baptist, okay? Because John the Baptist is not an all-knowing God. He was a man just like you and I. 
He didn't have all the answers. And so commentator Leon Morris, an old Australian guy, love loved his commentary on John. He says this, No man is what he is in his own eyes. He really is only as he is known to God. At a later time, Jesus equated John with Elijah of Malachi's prophecy, but that does not carry with it the implications that John himself was aware of the true position. It is further proper to point out that whereas the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give something of a biography of the Baptist, this evangelist, that's the author John, does not. Instead, he concentrates on John's theological significance and derives this rigorously from his relationship to Jesus. Now, now, key in on this. Jesus confers on John his true significance. John's own estimate of himself matters little. Friends, John knew that he wasn't the Messiah, and he actually thought of himself less than what Jesus thought of him. He practices humility here. But you and I, our true significance, our true identity is found in who Jesus says you are, not in who you say you are. That's important. We'll talk about that more in a second. So John's significance is wrapped up in who Jesus says he is, but he, he denies the title of Elijah. As far as he knows, he's just John the Baptist. So they ask again, they ask a third question, and here's the third denial of John. They say, okay, if you're not Elijah and you're not the Christ, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. Now, what are they talking about? Because John the Baptist is definitely a prophet. Well, I hate grammar, but it matters sometimes. And so it's not a prophet, but the prophet. That article matters. The prophet they were looking forward to someone that, in the theological con construct of the Jews, they thought that there needed to be a prophet who was going to come. They got their theology wrong. You see, the prophet and the Christ were one and the same. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, Moses is told by the Lord that someone greater than himself will be sent. A prophet just like himself that will go in between God and the people. That prophet is Jesus. And so John says, again, I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Christ. So he denies three things here. And these youth pastor priests, they're getting frustrated, right? And so they, they say, well, then what do you say about yourself? Who are you? And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John knows that he's here to testify about the Messiah. He knows that he's the one to make straight the people's hearts so that they can prepare themselves for Jesus. So that clears everything up, right? That's who John is, but not really. Uh, these, these youth pastor priests, they're confused, and now they have to go back, walk through the desert, and they have to think about it all the time. Their stomachs are getting churning in their stomach because they're like, oh, no, we have to go back, and this is a terrible answer. And so they say, well, why are you baptizing? Well, why are these thousands of people coming out here? And John never gives them a straight-up answer. 
But he alludes to the fact that the whole reason he is baptizing is because he is preparing the way for someone greater than himself. Someone who he's not even worthy to untie their sandal strap. And we think of someone really high and mighty. We think of someone that is so great. Who is it? Who is someone who's greater than someone who can draw thousands of souls out into the desert and move their hearts to be baptized while he's yelling at them? Who's greater than that? Well, let me take a second to point out something to you. Like John, we're not the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. We know this, but we can act like the Messiah. We think that in and of ourselves, we have so much power to save others, to save our own hearts and souls. So we work and we strive and we do so much. But the gospel isn't about what you do. The gospel is about what was done for you. The gospel is about a substitute. You see, um, back in my playing days, I used to be somewhat athletic, and I'm not anymore at all. But back in my playing days, whether it was baseball or basketball, I never wanted to come out of the game. I want to play the game. Even if I'm tired, I want to stay in the game to play and do my best. But there's sometimes when you needed to come out of the game. Right? When you, when you literally, like, you're, you're moving, like, this fast. Like, you need to come out of the game. Friends, the Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We weren't even moving sluggishly. We were dead. And so we need a substitute. We need someone that is greater than John the Baptist. Uh, friends, we strive all the time. I want my children to believe this. I want my children to act this way. I am going to be the perfect mother and have my kids just obey. It's tiring. Here's our hope. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Christ. That actually brings in hope. And here it is. John continues on. Okay, he's baptizing, he's doing this thing. This is a week, the first week, I believe, in John the author's life with Jesus. I think he was with John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, the very next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he has already baptized Jesus at this point. We see the past tense in the text. He's already baptized Jesus. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is significant. Now, for, for the Jewish people who are all gathered around there, they knew what lambs do. They knew the function of a lamb. Even though they were 24 miles away from Jerusalem, they knew that, that lambs would be sacrificed for their sins. They knew that all the way dating back, even before the Exodus, but in the Exodus, the Lord provides the lamb of atonement, the lamb that would be the substitute for the people in Leviticus 14, 12 through 21. The Lord says that all the sin of the nation of Israel will be laid on that lamb and it will be slaughtered for them. But there were, 
There weren't really any sheep. There's no lamb running around. John's pointing to a man. John is pointing to Jesus. John makes this declaration, and he gets everybody's attention. He says, look, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. You're not the Messiah. John's testimony is he's not the Messiah. He can't save you. I can't save you. You can't save yourself. But there's one who is a substitute. There's one who's going to be slaughtered for your shame, for your inadequacies, for your sin. Someone who takes your place, the Lamb, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. That is Jesus. And if anybody heard the conversations the day before, and I'm assuming they did because they were out in the middle of nowhere, so they're camping, and they hear John say, there is a lamb. Well, they look around. Who, who is this? And a normal-looking guy. Isaiah tells us there's no beauty that would attract us to him. A normal-looking guy is standing right there. And that normal-looking guy was going to be their substitute. That normal-looking guy was good enough in God's sight. That normal-looking guy was able to bear the sin of the world on his shoulders. That normal-looking guy, Jesus, John has a testimony about him. He says, you want to know something? I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not, I'm not the prophet, but I'll tell you who you need to know. You want to know somebody? You know the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Because this is what happened. And John is testifying that. He's saying this out loud. In verse 30, I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. No, stop. Are you saying that John didn't know his own cousin Jesus? Because they were cousins. It's possible. But it could at least, at the very least, allude to the fact that he didn't know his cousin was the Christ. He goes on. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You want to know who's important? Do you want to know who's worth coming out to the desert for? Do you want to know why people are being baptized in repentance? Because there is coming one who is going to be slain for your sins. And that one is Jesus. And we see that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was anointed on him. Well, why, why does he say that? Well, because back in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who's this lamb being slaughtered for? The world, the nations. He's bringing justice to the nations. Also in Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The spirit anointing of Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecy of 700 years before that Isaiah prophesied about that servant. That that servant of the Lord who would be slaughtered, that servant of the Lord who all we, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way, but that servant who would die on those sheep's behalf, that is who's here. He's calling the people to the attention of this, that they are not the Messiah. John the Baptist isn't the Messiah. He doesn't think highly of himself at all. But here is the Christ who can take away the sins of the world. Friends, John the Baptist was testifying about what was to come. You and I stand on the other side of the cross and we look back and we say, not only, has Christ, not only is Christ coming, but he has come and he has died. We have hope. Friends, this is our role as people. We're not the prophet, we're not the Christ, but we are Christians, little Christ. We are to be prophetic in our witness here in this age. That this age is hopeless. Suicides are going up astronomically. People are not affirmed in their most basic functions of a man being a man, a woman being a woman. Is that just some Baptist preacher railing against that? No. That's a brokenhearted man saying the world has no hope. The world has lost its way. But we can't do anything about it in none of our own selves. We're not the Messiah. So go ahead, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, be as good as you can possibly be. That's not going to save anyone and it's not going to save yourself. Friends, the message of the gospel is you can't save yourself, and that's a good thing. God has provided a substitute for you. That substitute is Jesus Christ. And it's not for you only, but what does John say in verse 29? Who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And so even though, like John, you're not the Messiah, also like John, you can still serve him. You're called to serve him. You're called to proclaim Christ and him crucified because there's power in that substitution. There's power in the blood of the lamb who was slain. There's power for you and I, hope to live today and tomorrow knowing that God loved us and gave himself up for us. You might say, well, Chase, I'm not the Messiah. I get that. But I'm not John the Baptist either. I'm not that great. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And you go, see, the Bible says I'm not that good. Oh, contraire, Pierre, listen. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
If you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, if he has lived that perfect life for you, died on the cross for you, if you have trusted in him as your Lord and Savior because he rose again, what we celebrated last week, you are saved. You're in the kingdom. And this is what the Bible says. Matthew eleven eleven. you are greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. But you have the answer, the lamb who was slain. And this is so wonderful, friends, because you aren't the Messiah. You can't offer hope in and of yourself, but you know the Messiah. Like John, you can testify of the Messiah. You can testify of that lamb. I think so often we think evangelism is hard. So often we think our Christian life uh, is really intricate and detailed. It's really, it's not I think we're scared to death. I think as sinful human beings, we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, please forgive me because I just completely couldn't share the gospel with that one person. John the Baptist is a human just like you and I. Didn't even know he was fulfilling the role of Elijah. Knew he wasn't the Messiah, though. Later on, he's in prison and he's discouraged. Do you remember he sends his own servants to Jesus to say, are you sure about this? Are you really the Christ? Friends, John, John the Baptist is, is a man like you and I, but a man used by God, a man used by God to testify about the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. In our simple lives, the Lord has placed us with friends and neighbors and coworkers who just need to hear that simple message. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I was at a pastor's conference this last week, and one of the pastors came up, and uh, you know, I, I talk about being missional all the time. But he came up and, and he and he said that there are 3.2 billion people in this world who are unreached. And he didn't mean that they were your neighbors, coworkers, and friends, because friends, people in this church, if you know Jesus, those people are reached. They actually have a connection to someone who knows the gospel. But there's, there's people in this, what we call the 1040 window, Muslim nations, Hindu nations, Sikh nations. No one knows about Christ whatsoever. And I, have to, I, I, I had to wonder in my heart as he went on and on about reaching the nations for Christ and, and sending missionaries and all that. I had, to, I had to think in my heart, Lord, what if our people at a Boy Baptist Church, what if, what if my own heart, what if I started testifying with courage and conviction, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I stand behind the pulpit or I walk around up here on stage all the time and I, I don't want you guys to think anything highly of me. I'm not the Messiah. I can't save you. I fail and I falter in my evangelism all the time. 
had a conversation earlier on in the week. I was talking with a guy, trying, trying to talk to him about Jesus. Just couldn't get there. But what do we do with that? As a group of people, what do we do with that? Do we encourage one another? Hey, Chase, you can't save that guy anyway. Were you trying to be faithful? Were you trying to be obedient? Were you trying to testify about the lamb? Yes, I was. Then you did what you were called to do. You see, the thing is, uh, there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who got baptized by John the Baptist. And a lot of those people, who we're going to read in John chapter 3, they started following Jesus. How many people were left with Jesus at the cross? Not very many people. Did John fail in his testimony? No. John's testimony was that the Lamb of, the God, the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world, he was here. And so even though there was just over 100 people in that upper room at Pentecost after Jesus had died, John the Baptist does not fail. And friends, you might share the gospel 100 times over. If no one trusts Christ, you have not failed. You're not the Messiah. You can't save anyone. You can't save yourself. But like John the Baptist, friends, we can be faithful in our witness to serve him and to tell others about the Lamb.